you guys will join me in praying as we come to the word this morning. Lord Jesus, we've sang it a couple different ways, but God, in the end, you are what we need this morning. Whatever's going on in life, the things that uh, put us on the mountaintops or the things that have us in the valleys, we need to keep our eyes fixed on you. You are the only thing that truly brings life. You are the only one who truly understands a situation. You are the only one who brings what we need. So we come this morning, God, to worship you. We come this morning to meet with you. God, as we come to your word, we need to hear from you. Would you speak to our hearts, God? Would it be, as David was sharing his story, not just, oh, I heard the pastor say this, or someone shared that during sharing, or, or this song said this, but may we come away saying, the Lord said. And as David said, everything is different when we hear the Lord speak. When our hearts are set on obedience and you speak, life is different. So would you come and speak this morning, I pray. Do as only you can, Father. May you increase and I decrease this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing our walk through the book of Mark. We're starting in Mark chapter 6 this morning. Uh, and there's a bit of a tone change in Mark chapter 6. Uh, up, up until this point, we've been looking at things like hope faith, kingdom power, and miracles. And it's kind of seemed to be uh, Jesus and the disciples just winning on all fronts. Uh, every time somebody comes against Jesus, uh, he's able to stand and, and work miracles and, and, and preach the kingdom in a way where people are awed and astounded. Where those that try to stand against him and, and prove him wrong and whatever it may be, they walk away hat in hand because you just can't stand against Jesus. But in chapter 6, we, we see a bit of a pivot. We see things moving from all winds to now, some things are getting a little more difficult. And I think, going into chapter 6, I, I think that, that Peter, through Mark, as they were writing this book, I think they didn't want us to lose sight of something, that there's suffering in the kingdom as well. It's not all just wins and everybody gets their miracle and everywhere Jesus went, it was just crowds and applause all the time. There's suffering involved in the kingdom as well. We believe that we as a church exist to see every single person involved in what church? Kingdom life. It's why we exist to invite others into kingdom life, a life following after the king and advancing his kingdom. But if we're really going to be involved in kingdom life, we must have a proper theology of suffering. Suffering is not something that is talked about a ton in churches. Suffering does not get you a big crowd. Suffering does not get you applause and people buy your books and your YouTube videos go like crazy or whatever it may be out there. And so suffering is something that's often kind of swept under the rugs and maybe we'll talk about in like small groups, but rarely do we ever just focus on suffering. But I truly believe if we're going to be involved in kingdom life in the way that God is calling us, we have to have a proper theology of suffering. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Mark chapter 6, and there's three stories that we're going to focus on, the first three stories in Mark chapter 6, and all of them have this tone of suffering to them. 
Because I think that Mark didn't want us to miss it. He didn't want his readers to get the wrong idea about following Jesus. And so let's take a look. The first story, Mark chapter 6, 1 through the first half of verse 6. Jesus left there, this place along the Sea of Galilee that he had been ministering for some time, uh, potentially months at this point. He finally leaves that place and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles that he is performing? And then it changes. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Now, real quick, just to to reset our, our needle for what kingdom normal is, I would like to point out the last verse there. He couldn't do any miracles I mean, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. It would be a Sunday to remember around here if three people got healed. We would be, like, be talking about it for years to come. But for Jesus and his disciples, I mean, I could barely do anything. I couldn't do any miracles, just heal a few sick people. It kind of just it reveals a little bit about the heart of Jesus and the way that he loved people. He was going to bring life and wholeness to people. To where he could only heal a few, and it was like, man, it was, it was like nothing. Again, this is Peter talking, and Peter lives in the extremes. I love Peter. Peter's like, man, basically nothing happened. You ask those three people, they would have a very different look on things. But you see in this story how astonishment turns to offense. They started off in wonder of Jesus. Where did he get this amazing teaching We've seen before this authority that he had. Where did, these couple miracles that he did, the people were astounded until they went, wait, 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 wait. That's the Jesus we know? That's the Jesus that I went to school with? That's a, he's the carpenter? It like lives over on Joseph Street? I don't know what they, how they did addresses back then. We know him. His family is here. We know his sisters, his mom. Who does this guy think he is? We have seen, as we've read through Mark, how threatening the kingdom can be to people. To some, like the Pharisees, it was threatening their power and their prestige. Now I wonder, you come to Jesus' hometown, and it was threatening the status quo. Who does this guy think he is? If he can get out like this, if he is moving in this kind of power, and he has disciples who are following him, and my life looks like it does, either something's wrong with my life or something's wrong with him. And it is much easier to start throwing the stones instead of looking in the mirror. And that's exactly what happens here. They start out in awe, in wonder of Jesus. And then the, kind of the, the bigger it goes, the more awesome he is, the more they start to resent and take offense because he's just one of us. Who does he think he is? And we see there's this amazing verse uh, in verse 6. 
he was amazed at their lack of faith. There's only two times in scripture that we have where Jesus is amazed, and both of them have to do with faith. The the first one uh, is a story over in Luke chapter 7 that we'll just look at a piece of it. But this centurion, this Roman centurion, this pagan, comes to Jesus and says, will you heal a servant of mine? He's sick, nobody can do anything, but you seem to be able to do something. Would you heal him? And Jesus says, yeah, okay, let's go to your house. And the man stops Jesus in his tracks and goes, no, 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 you don't need to come to my house. If you just speak the word, my servant will be healed. Whether you see him or touch him or not, that's who you are. He said, look, I'm a man under authority too. I don't have to go everywhere and put my hands on everything. I give a command and it's done. I know that you're the same way. If you are who you say you are, and the centurion believed it, you just speak the word and it happens. And we find this in Luke 7, 8, and 9, starting with the, with the centurion talking to Jesus. And he says, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. That one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such a faith even in Israel. Jesus is amazed by this man's great faith. Everyone else had to see it, and there had to be some kind of touching. There was this, they were trying to figure out this process, and this man goes, no, 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 it's not about that. You speak it, and it happens. That's who you are. And Jesus is amazed at his faith. And then we have this story in Mark chapter 6 with what I'm calling the homers. The hometown heroes that, that just want to stay in their small little town, just want to keep doing what they've always been doing, patting themselves on the back, and they say, Jesus coming in. And they're threatened by him. And Jesus is amazed at their faith. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. This is kind of a little bunny trail here, but you just can't skip over it. Faith amazes Jesus one way or the other. One way or the other, Jesus is amazed by faith. When he looks at your faith, when he looks at my faith, is he amazed? And is it in the good way? Jesus is amazed at their lack of faith. Jesus is amazed at the centurion's faith. I've never seen faith like this anywhere in Israel. Faith amazes Jesus. It moves his heart. When he looks at your faith, when he looks at my faith, Is he amazed, and is it in the good way? But what we see in this story, as we take a step back, is we see Jesus suffering dishonor. The king, we talk about kingdom life. Here we have the king walking on earth and being dishonored by those who probably knew him better than anyone else. The ones who should have seen this coming. The ones who probably saw, man, even when he was a little kid, there was something different about him. They missed it, and they chose offense. They chose insult, and they dishonored him. So we see the king suffering dishonor and disrespect. For what? What was he doing that was so offensive? He was inviting people into the kingdom. He was sharing with them secrets of life. We don't have in here that Jesus came condemning for their sin and telling them hell was waiting for them and brimstone and the whole thing. What we have from 
from all the chapters leading up to this is Jesus going around inviting people into the kingdom, telling that the, the kingdom is here and it's now, and it's to set the oppressed free. And they took offense at it. And so Jesus suffers disrespect and dishonor for inviting people into the kingdom. Let's go on from here. The second half of verse 6. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Weird, but okay. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So Jesus, after this time, they're leaving his hometown and he gets his disciples together and he goes, boys, I'm sending you out in pairs, kind of every different direction I can find. And you're just going to go preach the kingdom to people. And he gives them some, some instructions here. Go depending solely on the hospitality of others. Don't take anything extra with you. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Kind of a weird one. Wear your sandals, but take no extra shirt. It's almost like some of the boys were assuming they heard the no bread, no money, and they sat down and started untying their sandals and, whoa, 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 leave your shoes on, but don't take the extra shirt. Go solely depending on the hospitality of others. In first century hospitality, just so you understand, we think hospitality now and we think inviting someone over for dinner. Hospitality back then was wanderers, strangers, people traveling would just walk into a city square and they would sit down in the city square. And it, was, it became known, these people have no place to stay, and it was common courtesy to come and invite someone into your home. Come, stay with me and my family. Eat my food. Stay in a room in my home. I, like, this was just common courtesy hospitality. And Jesus says, go, depending solely on the hospitality of others. But he also prepared them for something. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. He was preparing them for disappointment. He was saying, look, some of these places you're going to go, and as soon as people find out that you're with me, doors are going to slam in your face. The common courtesy that they would show someone who, who is not even from Israel, who's coming in from other places, a beggar on the street is going to get treated better than you will when people find out that you're with me. And he, he's preparing them for this. It's not going to be all wins, boys. Some of you are going to have doors slammed in your face, maybe even multiple times, and here's how I want you to handle it. Leave that place and shake the dust off your sandals as a testimony against them. Because they're not really rejecting you, they're rejecting me, Jesus would say. It, it wasn't all suffering and disappointment. We see at the end there that they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. It was this mixed bag. But up until this point, if you're not paying attention, it can seem like win, 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 win. So come and be a part of the kingdom, and everything just turns up roses from then. And I think Mark wanted to kind of pause and go, before you get the wrong idea, this was a mixed bag. This wasn't all simple. This wasn't all wins. We just went everywhere and won. 
there was losses mixed in. Jesus himself suffered dishonor and disrespect. His disciples had doors slammed in their face and told, you're not welcome here in our town. If you're with him, you're not welcome here. Jesus was warning and actually preparing them to suffer disappointment. And then we go on into the next story, starting in verse 14. And this one's not up there. I'm just going to read it from here. King Herod heard of this because Jesus' name had become well-known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why supernatural powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. Still others, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets. Like that was like, he's not just some prophet. He's like one of the prophets, like Isaiah, like Elijah, these revered names. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded has been raised For Herod himself had been given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. John had been telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not because Herod was in awe of John and he protected him. Knowing he was a righteous and holy man, when Herod heard him, he would be very disturbed, yet would hear him gladly. Now an opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias, his own daughter, came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. So he swore oaths to her, whatever you ask I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. Immediately, she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter right now. Though the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When, the disciples heard, when his disciples, John's disciples, heard about it, They came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. So first of all, let's just imagine that scene. You have Herod, uh, one of the rulers at the time, wanting to marry his brother's wife, the, the lady that his brother's currently married to, and Herod's trying to marry her. And here's what John is guilty of. Herod, that's against the law. Herod, it's, it's unlawful for you to marry your brother's wife. That's it. Standing up for that simple truth, Herod, what you want to do is against the law that God has given Israel. And so Herod has John arrested. And it says that he loved to bring John in and to hear John talk. And, and we get from here that we had, he had even seen John do miracles because people had said Jesus was John raised from the dead. And that's why he was able to do miracles too. And so John was like the best entertainment in town. Herod loved to come and listen to John. And he would bring him in and he would have him, him speak. And it said that he was in awe of him. Even though everything John said disturbed him, he still loved to see the show. He was entertained by John. Herodias was obviously not entertained by John. John represented her not getting what she wanted, becoming more powerful by marrying the more powerful brother. And so she starts to plot. Herod has this banquet, and Herodias' daughter comes out and dances, and it's, an, it's such an incredible dance that the king 
starts swearing oaths to her, I'll give you anything up to half of my kingdom. Just name it and it's yours. Weird. Like, it seems so out of place. But Herod was a weird guy. So he says, okay, fine. Whatever you want, up to half my kingdom is yours. And Herodias sees her chance. I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. This party took a dark, dark turn. Can you imagine being one of those dinner guests? Man, what a great dance. We're going to see what now? What's under the, the lid? Oh, it took a turn. But Herod had to do it. He couldn't be seen as weak and breaking his oaths. And so he says, fine, bring her John's head. So you can imagine John sleeping in his prison cell, not the best life anyway. When the guards come, open the door, and he sees the axe man. He's beheaded right there in prison. One of, the, one of the greatest known men of God up to this time, beheaded in a lonely prison cell, and his head is brought and paraded in front of, of Herod and his guests. Now, imagine that you're Jesus' disciples. You come back. The, the very next story, which we're going to look at next week, is the disciples come back from being out. And they, man, the, some of them got doors slammed in their face. Some of them saw incredible miracles and they cast out evil spirits and people were healed. And they come back and Jesus goes, hey, remember John? He, he's dead. Beheaded by Herod. I, imagine if you're one of the disciples going, whoa, 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 wait. But he was following you. But he was speaking up for you. He was telling people, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He was revered and respected. And he was beheaded by Herod for a party trick? This would have been gut check time for the disciples. If that can happen to John, what could this cost me? If John could suffer not only disgrace and imprisonment, but execution simply for being associated with Jesus and speaking about the kingdom truths, what's in store for us? The disciples would have had to come face to face with suffering. They, it, Jesus was making it very clear, following me, is not all roses. It is not an easy road. There is suffering involved in kingdom life. They, they would have seen it firsthand. They would have seen him suffer. They suffered. And now they hear about John, respected and revered, who paid the ultimate price. They would have had to come face to face with it. If we're going to be involved in kingdom life, we got we to gotta wrap our heads around suffering. For you and I here today, if we're going to be involved in kingdom life, we have to have a proper theology of suffering. We have to have a proper theology of suffering because we are all called to suffer for the kingdom. Again, this is where it's not a super popular message. Most of the time, it's come to Jesus and he will bless you. Come to Jesus and, and he'll provide and he'll take away pain and maybe you'll get your healing or your blessing or your miracle. Just, just pray hard. But what we find in Scripture is that actually we're all called to suffer for the kingdom. That to follow Jesus is to take on and to embrace suffering. 
Jesus in, in Matthew 16 tells his disciples this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Deny yourself, take up your cross, a known instrument of death. It would have been a somewhat regular thing for them to walk down the street past a row of crosses where criminals were being crucified. Deny yourself, take up one of those, and follow me. Jesus wasn't into bait and switch. Come here and it'll be a blessing. And oh, by the way, sometimes it's hard. He was telling people from the jump, suffering is a part of this. We, we have another spot in Luke where a man wants to come and follow Jesus. And this guy's thinking it's going to be great. I'm just going to be like a part of Jesus' crew and it's going to be awesome. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I don't even have a place to lay my head. Foxes have holes and birds have nests. I don't even have a place to lay my head. It is hard in the kingdom. There's suffering in the kingdom. Philippians 3.10, we love the first half of this verse. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. I have heard people pray this. I've heard people teach on it. I've heard people proclaim it. But we leave off the second part. And the fellowship of his sufferings becoming conformed to his death. I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Now, how do we do that? By joining in the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Death to self. Denying himself, taking up his cross. We love the idea of power and, this, and resurrection. We shy away from suffering and death. But all throughout scripture, these things are tied together, hand in glove. We have all been called to suffer for the kingdom. I'm going to read a couple passages here because I just want you to see I'm, I'm not just pulling, cherry-picking some of these out. There's only three of them, and I found them. It's everywhere in Scripture. 1 Peter 5, 6 to 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he might lift you up in due time. We love it. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It's so, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know, and notice the switch, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be power forever and ever. Amen. There's an expectation of suffering associated with following Jesus. Peter didn't go, look, and maybe some things will get hard for him. And he goes, look, let me, tell, let me sum up your life for you a little bit. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. You're called to it. It's a part of following Jesus, suffering. There was an expectation of suffering. Our expectation is to get through life with as little pain as possible, with as much comfort, and we are suffering averse. Every person is, but especially in American culture, we have so many things that we can do to distract ourselves, to, to circumvent. There's loopholes everywhere. 
if I start to suffer at all, there's got to be somebody I can sue, right? And that makes it all better. But what we find is Jesus goes, look, when you want to follow me, suffering is part and parcel. Expect it. 1 Peter 3, a few chapters before that verse. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Suffering and blessing going together. Do not fear what they fear or be disturbed, but honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give in defense for anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. We love that verse. However, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear, so that when you are accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God after being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. Peter was going, look, you're going to suffer for doing the right thing. Like we saw Jesus, like we saw in his disciples, like we saw with John, you're going to suffer even for doing the right thing. It doesn't mean that God has left you. There's actually blessing in embracing suffering because God will raise you up. Remember, Jesus suffered too to bring you to God. It's part of his story. It'll be part of yours. Jesus himself says this in John 15, mere days before he goes to the cross. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember that I told you a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teachings, they will obey yours also. They will treat you in this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus says, look, you're not greater than me. And they persecuted me. He knew what was coming. His disciples would have heard this and they would have just thought about the disrespect and the dishonor. They didn't even know where this was leading yet. Jesus did. And he said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. There's going to be suffering in my name. That is part of following Jesus. We have to have this proper understanding of suffering because we're all called to it. First of all, just being human, there's no escaping suffering. We are all going to suffer in some way, but I'm not even just talking about the suffering of 2020 and how everyone's lives have been affected. There's this normal level of suffering that all humanity shares. What Jesus is talking about is when you choose to follow me, there's going to be an even greater level of suffering. Not a popular message but he wants us to expect it. We've all been called to it. Let me ask you this question, and I, and I want responses now. Why does God allow us to suffer? Or at times even seem like leads us into suffering. Why? Well, can't he just make everything good? Can't he just make it so that life doesn't hurt anymore when you follow him? Wouldn't that be a better sales pitch? But that's not the one that he went with. Why does God allow us to suffer? What do you think? Okay. Yeah, it causes us to look toward him. Uh, we sang a song earlier uh, called I Look Up, and the whole thing is like, look, when I'm up on the mountaintop, everything's going good. Man, I just came back from 
church camp as a kid and you're riding that wave, it is easy. And most of us, if not all of us in that time, we take our eyes directly off of him and we put it on all the good things. And shortly after, we fall. We find ourselves in the valley, and in the valley, we're forced to look up to him. We are keenly aware of our need for him when we're in suffering. Absolutely. Why else? Sure. Might not learn some things otherwise. Maybe because I'm in a position where I don't have to learn them. Because when things are good, I can just keep doing what I've been doing. When I'm suffering, I'm real open to God. What, what, you lead me. You teach me. You show me the way through this. And again, it puts us in a posture of learning. Why else? Yeah, when suffering hits, lightweight faith doesn't cut it anymore. It's easy to have faith when everything's good. When things get hard, I have to really decide, do I believe he's good even when it hurts? Do I believe he's worth following even if he's leading me someplace that I don't want to go? All of a sudden, faith has to be real in the midst of suffering. Faith has to deepen and mature if we're going to make it through suffering. What else? One of the promises that we have, I think, to the Beatitudes, and it said, blessed are those who mourn, who are suffering, for they will be comforted. There is a deeper relationship with God that can only be found in times of suffering, in times of hardship, in times of loss. I was thinking the same thing. Kim mentioned we do these Canadian wilderness canoe trips that are hard. It's a week long, and every day is just plain work. And everyone I've had that was kind of like on the easier side, we never tell those stories. We talk about the times that it was hard. Man, we had to band together. And there's this depth of relationship that gets built. I mean, just between us as humans, when we go through something hard together, how much more does God want for us when he says, look, when you're in the midst of these, I want to walk with you through the hardship. When you're keenly aware of your need for me, I want to be there in a deeper way than you can experience in any other time. So that we can have this new depth of relationship that really can only be forged when we go through hard things together. I played sports growing up and I was thinking about it as I was driving around this week and going, any time I ever had where we were just constantly the better team and everything was easy and you just kind of win just because we showed up and we started winning, we don't talk about those. We don't, like, I don't know any of those guys anymore. I wasn't forced to have any kind of deep relationship with them. But on the teams where things were hard, 
where we had to band together, where we had to fight through things. Those are guys, I remember those guys. I tell those stories. We have a much deeper relationship because we suffered together. We went through hard things together. And there's something about that 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 unites us, that binds us together. How much more with our loving Father who wants to be with us in the midst of suffering? Let me read a couple passages here. Romans 5, 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. Amen. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Think about it. This is Paul writing this book. Paul understood suffering. At one point in the the book of Galatians, he lists out some of the things that he suffered. He, He had been flogged, beaten with sticks and whips countless times. He'd been shipwrecked three times all for the Lord's sake. He had been imprisoned. Like He goes through this list of all of the things that he has suffered because he's following the Lord, not just because he's human. And hey, everybody knows this one. He's going, no, no, no. Here's what I've suffered simply for following Jesus. And yet he is able to say, not only do we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because God is at work in our sufferings. Because God uses our sufferings to give us perseverance. And perseverance builds character and character builds hope. And this hope will not be put to shame. It's only through sufferings that we build perseverance and gain character, maturity in who God has called us to be and have hope. Because Paul went, look, I've already been shipwrecked twice. If I get shipwrecked a third time, he's going to be there. I have hope that God is going to show up because he showed up when I suffered in the past. The kind of hope that wouldn't be there if everything had just been easy, like we want it to be. It produced perseverance, character, hope. These qualities only come through suffering. They don't come through easy things in life. Yet these are the things that make us the men and women that God has called us to be. It's that kind of hope that won't be put to shame. And it only comes through suffering. I think of Acts chapter 5, a story where, where Peter and John, they're going around, they're, they're healing people, they're teaching in Jesus' name, and they're called in by the leaders of the synagogue, or uh, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the same men who a few months before literally murdered Jesus for doing this kind of stuff. And so they call him in, the, the two of them, and they, and they start to argue with them, and who do you think you are? And Peter and John are just bold. And they say, you decide whether it's right for us to listen to you or to listen to God. You pick. We will not stop speaking in Jesus' name. Again, these men just murdered Jesus. Peter and John knew we are risking it all right now. And they stand up boldly to these men, unafraid to suffer. And here's where the the Pharisees come to, Acts 5, verse 40. After they called in the apostles, they had them flogged. Let's not skip that. They had them beat with sticks and whips. It's easy sometimes to just read the word flogged and moved on. They had them beat. 
because they would speak in Jesus' name, because they said, we're not stopping. You'd have to kill us. So they had them flogged. They ordered them not to speak in Jesus' name and release them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be dishonored on behalf of the name. What? I, Lord, thank you that I am worthy to get beat with sticks for your name. Lord, man, they actually pulled out the whip. Thank you that I have been counted worthy to suffer for your name. This does not sound like my faith. My faith would be, God, why did you let that happen? You could have stopped them. Why didn't you stop them? But these guys understood in suffering. I know Jesus in a way I will never know him any other way. Oh, to be counted worthy to be flogged for the name. It sounds so foreign Yet these were the men leading the church. These were the men teaching. And what would they have been teaching every other disciple? What a glorious thing it is to suffer for the Lord's name. What a blessed thing it is to suffer for the Lord's name. This is very different from the gospel that we have. Romans 8.18, Paul saying in a different book, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Again, when Paul says present sufferings, he wasn't talking about, yeah, I got some some thumbs down on Facebook. He's talking about beatings, imprisonment, some of the difficult things. And he goes, but these are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. I am happy to take this suffering on. In another translation, it says, for I consider these light and momentary troubles beatings, imprisonment. These are light and momentary troubles when compared to the glory that is waiting for me. They understood a proper theology of suffering. Suffering is a part of walking with Jesus because through suffering, I will become more like him than I'm able to on the good days. And so when the suffering comes, I'm not going to look for a way out. I'm going to look for him. Because he desires to use suffering to make me more like him, and I don't want to miss it. This is not natural. This is not American. This is not easy. We worship comfort and ease and wealth and abundance. And when that's threatened, we get real selfish real quick. But suffering is a part of following Jesus in the kingdom. And to miss that is to miss becoming the man or woman that he has called you to be. We have to have a proper theology of suffering because here's such an important piece. Because you can't have love without suffering. This isn't just about, hey, some days are going to be bad and you just try to make it through. Do you understand that you cannot have love without suffering? Love cannot be separated from suffering. How many of you have ever been to a wedding before? Many of you are married, so at least one, okay? What passage is read at almost every wedding you've ever been to. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4, and let me read you the first three words. Love is patient. Now, we like the word patient because we don't really understand it. The word patient in the Greek means long-suffering. Love is willing to suffer for a long time for the betterment of the the object that it loves. 
when we stand up there and we read those at a wedding, what we're saying is you are worth suffering for. You are worth giving up what I want for suffering loss, for putting myself last. You are worth suffering for. That's what love is. We talk sometimes about the passion of Christ as we come up to Easter week. And there's a movie, maybe you've heard of it, The Passion of Christ. And we think, man, Jesus loves us so much. The word passion in the Greek means to suffer, to bear on yourself, to endure. The passion of the Christ wasn't just, we took it as like, man, look how much Jesus loves me. Yes, because what passion really means, look how much he was willing to suffer because he loves me. Everything that he endured was an expression of love, yes? His suffering was how he showed he loved us. You cannot have love without suffering. You can't separate the two. And in our American culture, that's what we want to do, and that's why most weddings end as soon as things get too hard. We say things like, you know, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, but really we're going to a point. Most people are going, there's only so much that I'm really willing to give for this. And once it gets too hard, once I have to suffer too much, we start looking for the escape hatch. When the kind of love that we're actually pledging is there's nothing I wouldn't suffer for your good. Now, that sounds a whole lot like Jesus and not a whole lot like me. But this is the kind of love that he has called us to. This is the kind of love that he has displayed for us. How did God show love to us? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Gave, as in gave up, sacrificed, suffered the loss of. He loved you so much, God the Father, that he suffered the loss of his own son for your sake. How did Jesus love us? We read this before in in 1 Peter 3. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He suffered what you deserved because he loved you. You cannot separate love and suffering. Our culture has been trying forever and it's just led to more brokenness. We want all the good, but let's leave the bad behind. To love is to suffer. So how do we show love to Jesus? How do we show love to our king? To love the king is to be willing to suffer for the king, just like he suffered for us. Matthew 6, 1 through 6, Jesus was willing to suffer dishonor and disrespect for love of the kingdom. Matthew 6, 6 through 13, the disciples were willing to suffer disrespect and doors slammed in their face for the king. Matthew 6, 14, John the Baptist was willing to suffer death for the king. Every disciple that we have in scripture, everyone who became an apostle and a leader of the church, everyone suffered slandered beatings and all but one suffered execution. The one that didn't was just, they tried, but the... The murder didn't work, so they exiled him onto an island for the rest of his life. They suffered for their king and were blessed for it. And here's one we're not going to get too much into, but 
to love your neighbor is to be willing to what for them? Suffer. We're called to love God with heart, mind, and soul and love our neighbor as ourself. To be willing to suffer whatever it costs to see him more clearly and to do the work he's called us to do. That is love. And to love our neighbor as ourself, to be willing to suffer on behalf of our neighbor for the betterment of our neighbor. This is where most of us stop. It's too hard, it's too messy, I'd rather not. To love is to suffer. If you've been married for more than a day, you understand this. It's to sacrifice, to give up, to go without for the betterment of the other person. This is the kind of love that has been shown to us and this is the kind of love we're called to show God and the world. So let me ask this question. And again, this, I would love feedback here. What does it look like to suffer for the king in America in 2021? Not many of us, hopefully just a fraction, will ever be beheaded at a dinner party because we follow Jesus. We will probably not be beat with sticks and whips because we proclaim the name of Jesus. We have certain laws and protections in place. Our suffering is not going to look like most of the first century suffering. So what does it actually look like to suffer for the king? Here in in America in 2021, there are some places in the world right now where it looks very much like what we read in scripture. And while we will pray for those people and lift those people up, understanding, at least for now, that's not what it looks like here. So, So what does it look like to suffer for the king? Rejection? How so? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it can feel like being an outcast in society sometimes, or these people... Well, they'll talk about this with everyone else, but when they see you come in, the conversation changes sometimes. You're, you're not welcome into that part of life or into that people group or whatever it be. It can feel like rejection. What else? Okay. Giving up comfort to follow him wherever, he, wherever he's leading us. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I would say if you're doing it right, serving others probably will never be comfortable. There's, there's always a bit of, even in the small things, a bit of sacrifice. There's something else I could be doing with my time, with my energy. There's always at least a small piece of sacrifice in serving others. What else? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I sincerely hope it's false slander and accusation. Yeah, there's gonna be people, let's just be honest, who talk bad about you because they don't like the hope that they see in you. Maybe, honestly, some of it is not as false as we'd like because they know other hypocritical Christians and maybe they just assume you're one of those. Or maybe they found out that you're flawed. They saw the time that you actually were a hypocrite and they're now choosing to hit you over the head with it, maybe even. What else? So here's what I have come to through reading through this and studying this week is I'm just going to tell, I'm going to speak for myself. You, you put the pieces of the puzzle together however you want to. I would be ashamed to stand before the witnesses of scripture 
and go, it costs too much to follow Jesus because there were some people that were going to spread rumors about me. Uh, I, I think of um, Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, where it talks about these, these great men and women of faith who followed God through all these difficult circumstances. And at the end, almost as like a side note, it says, look, some were imprisoned, sawn in two, fed to lions for their faith. And I mean, it kind of gives some incredible stuff. And then Hebrews chapter 12 starts with, now that we live in such a great cloud of witnesses to, to live out our faith, going, man, if they lived through that for their faith, I want to be counted worthy as well. And I think of it myself and I go, if I'm going to let what someone posts about me on social media, what a family member, someone that I love and care about, what they would say or how they would judge me, whatever it is, if I'm going to let that stop me from becoming the man that God has called me to be, from doing the work that God has called me to be, if I'm going to say that 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 suffering is too much, that cost is too high, one day I'm going to stand in the presence of men and women that gave far more and I'm going to be ashamed. That, for me, just goes, I, I can't let that be, be my story. I followed Jesus this far because it just got too hard. Sure, you were imprisoned, beat, killed, whatever it may be, but somebody, was, somebody didn't like me. So obviously, I was out. It's, it's normal for us, but man, when you put it in perspective... The suffering that God is calling us to is relatively minimal. Are we willing to love him enough to suffer? What, what It really is suffering. I'm not trying to downplay it. It does hurt when, when people break relationship with you, when those that you care about and you trust, when they use it against you, when they spread rumors, when, when people assume falsely your motives or whatever. Like It does hurt. But am I going to allow that to stop me from becoming the person that he's called me to be, to persevere, to have character and hope that only times of suffering can bring. I'm not going to go try to get thrown in jail somewhere or beheaded, but with the suffering that, that we have in front of us, am I willing to follow him hard in spite of it, regardless of what they would say or what they would think? That has been the, the thought that has been plaguing me this week as I've read through this, as I've studied it. Many in scripture wouldn't call this even suffering, but for us it is, and it, it is very real. Am I willing to suffer that to show my love to the king and to those around me? Let me pray, and then we're going to sing a song to close. Lord Jesus, if at any point, Lord, I, I downplayed our suffering, uh, forgive me, Lord. That was not my heart. I I want it to be in proper perspective, but God, in the end, I'll speak on our behalf. We desire to follow wherever you are leading us. And Lord, there's going to be times when it hurts, when we have to suffer loss, loss of relationship, loss of income, loss of whatever it may be. And in those times, God, may you bring back to our hearts the connection between love and suffering my willingness to suffer for you is the greatness of my love for you. I love you, Lord. May I be willing to walk through whatever trial is ahead of me because I know that I'll not be walking through it alone. Because I know that you will be using it for my own good 
to build character and hope in me. Lord, may I look to you in these times and look at how much you suffered for me. And may that be my guide in these times. Make us into the men and women that you desire for us to be. Men and women willing to walk hand in hand with the king wherever he may lead, regardless of the cost. Give us this kind of boldness and faith, God, I pray. In Jesus' name.